Hi there, welcome to Series 2 of the Release the Sound podcast, where we talk all things prophetic worship. I'm Roma Waterman, and it is my passion to empower, to educate, encourage, and equip you to release a sound of heaven that transforms the communities that you are a part of. So stay tuned, listen to some amazing guests, and be blessed. Thanks for joining me. Welcome back, everyone, to the Release the Sound podcast. What a privilege it is today to have a very special guest and you will know him I am sure of it his name is Ray Hughes if you've been involved in creativity and worship for as long as I have you will know that he is the man whenever you need to have a question answered I always go to a Ray Hughes book or a podcast or a course and I think that's why, Ray, you're called the granddaddy of worship. It's got nothing to do with age but wisdom. There's so much wisdom when you speak and um, I particularly also love your sense of humour. It's very similar to mine, so I, I love having a good laugh when I get to speak to you. But let me do a professional bio for people that have never heard of Ray Hughes. Ray Hughes has traveled the world for over 50 years as an author, storyteller, songwriter, poet, and he currently continues his work from the porch of their historic downtown home in Alabama, not far from what is called the Singing River. That sounds so beautiful. He's passionate about homemade cornbread. I have never tasted cornbread, so that's fascinating to me. It's not an Australian thing. Loves old guitars his beautiful wife, Denise, and five grandchildren. He's written many books, online courses, poems, podcasts. And there's one book in particular, actually, that uh, really impacted me, which is called Sound of Heaven, Symphony of Earth. It's the kind of book that when I show it to people or I talk about it to people, and this has actually happened, Ray, people say to me, this book is awesome. Can I borrow it? And I go, no, you cannot borrow it. You can go and buy one for yourself. This book never leaves my hands because I'd be too scared that I would never get it back. That's how much I love that book. So we just want to welcome you today. It's an absolute honor to have you, Ray. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you, Roma. And by the way, just for whatever's worth, if somebody does happen to abscond the, that book and it gets gone, uh, yeah, I got friends in high places. And we have friends in <laughs> Good to know, but mine's all underlined and has lots of oh, notes. Yeah. It's special. Oh, that's true. That's true. I forget, <laughs> I forget about that part. <laughs> uh, I was um, in a university class yesterday. I'm studying a master's in spirituality, and uh, yeah. the, the lecturer, who's a father, Father Austin, lovely, incredibly wise man, he actually said, have you really read a book if it's not underlined? And I was like, Yes. Yeah. It's so true. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Yeah. You know, there's our, I started to say our president, but it, in yes. fact, it wouldn't be your president. Yeah. But our second president, John Adams, he, he made this uh, an interesting statement about uh, books. You know, of course, back then, a library was very different than what it is today. You know, a library yes. now are apps. You know, you can access yeah. anything on your phone. But in those days, he made the statement something like this. He said, You'll never be alone as long as you carry a poet in your pocket. Mm, wow. And, and what he would do is he would always make sure he never left home without poetry in his pocket, always having something to be able to engage with the language of his world and the language outside of his world and the beauty that the poets would be seeing and hearing. Yes. He would get to experience it as well. And also he was one of those that really promoted the idea of mark up the books, write up the books, use up the books. Now, you know, don't don't just hoard things on the shelf. You know, I'm a bit the same way. I, I carry every time, every day when I go on my walk, I carry this old, uh, this actually the Psalms, a church hymnary from Scotland. It's very old and it's, it's uh, the, the Psalms of David in meter. Oh, wow. So every Psalm rhymes. Wow. Written, written in rhyme and meter. I'll give you two verses just so you'll see yes, how it works. Yes, love to hear. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me down to lie. In pastures green, he leadeth me the quiet waters by. Mm. My soul, he does, and then it goes on. Isn't that kind of a, I, I love it that somebody so many generations ago decided that that would be a beautiful way to uh, cause people to feel and see and with rhythm and cadence and meter, you know. Mm, stunning. Um, 
I love that you're reading that. I want to make a joke and say, will you lend me that book? But you'll probably say no, just like I no, I won't lend anyone your book. <laughs> yeah. But I love that you shared that psalm because I've actually been committing to memorize that this month. So I've been saying it every single day. So yeah. I now I'm going to go and look for one of those books. Fabulous. Amazing. Yeah. I've got a lot of them, like the old hymnals that you would, they, everybody would, the ladies would carry in their purse or the men in their breast yes. pocket, you know. And that's one of the ways that I have found to walk with the Lord. Mm, beautiful. You know, we say we're going to walk with the Lord. Well, I don't hike. I don't jog. I don't even go for walks. I more saunter more than anything else. Yes. <laughs> um, I, it's, I love collecting old hymnals, actually. I Whenever I go to a, a thrift store, the first place I go is the the book section. And one of my favorite things when I travel to other countries is doing the same thing and buying hymnals from other countries. I found one in, uh, we went to, you know, the Wesley brothers. We actually mm. had the privilege of going to the house they grew up in, in England a couple of years ago. And they had this little bookshop that was attached to it. And they had an old hymnal that we can't get in Australia here. So I, I picked it up. I bought it for, you know, a couple of dollars. And I'll, yeah. if I ever get stuck with songwriting ideas, I often pull the hymnals out and I just read them while I'm sitting at my piano. And I just, the, I, they're just so beautifully written. It's, it's yeah. almost like yeah. a lost art, isn't it? Yeah, it's as lost as the art of conversation. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, that's another dying art, you might say. Yes, wow. definitely. Well, all right, let's talk about some of the things uh, around worship today. I know your expanse is so much bigger than that, but I'd love to ask you, what do you think prophetic worship is? Because it kind of gets thrown around a lot, that term. I'd love mm -hmm. to know, what do you think prophetic worship is? Well, uh, and you're right. And I don't think it's necessarily uh, a good or a bad thing. I, I tend to lean toward it being a beautiful thing that we're constantly processing the Word of God and processing our lives through the Word of God and new understandings of worship continue to unfold and prophecy. Mm. I mean, you know, some time back we all knew what, you know, prophecy was that, that thing that the old prophets did in the Bible. Yeah. And then sooner or later, we we start getting a different understanding and, and revelation based upon what God would reveal seasonally and all these emphasis of the Holy Spirit that would come seasonally. Yes. And then yes. along would come these terms that we would not be accustomed to even within the body of Christ. And that would, so the Lord would begin to highlight something like faith or, or uh, covenant or whatever. You know, remember that. For a while, a seasonal emphasis on healing, and then it might be on evangelism. There might be one of the fivefold ministry being highlighted for a season. And then, of course, along comes worship, and we wind up being introduced to a whole new reality because we realize this is not a seasonal emphasis. It's yeah. an eternal emphasis. Wow. And so with when we hear terms like prophetic worship, well, prophetic, uh, you know, when we think of a prophecy, we think the office of a prophet, uh, the gift of prophecy, and then spirit of prophecy. Yeah. What does the, the prophetic carries the weightiness to our lives of, you know, the, the quickest, purest definition there would be to prophesy or to, it would be uh, to predict. Yeah. It can be predictive or it can create, you know, you can predict the future prophetically. You can create the future with another expression of the prophetic weightiness of word and truth. And then thirdly, the one we overlook is it also prevents the future. Mm, wow. It prevents particular dynamics in the future. For example, God's people, how many times did they go whoring after other gods, turn their eyes away from the Lord, invite uh, the infiltration of other demonic influences into their culture? Pretty soon there's no longer any worship because they're compromising with the idolatrous nations that have encamped against them. Mm, wow. So they wouldn't always attack the people of God. They would encamp against, infiltrate, then to maintain peace, the people of God would lose their worship and their truest identity. Mm. And then out of nowhere, God would raise up some guy out in the middle of a cave here or in the woods. Or in the, uh, I always say that all moves of God typically begin in a cave and die in a cathedral. Oh, wow. 
But nonetheless, out of those places of obscurity would come one of these prophets. And they would just begin to speak in such a way that it would realign, give God's people an opportunity to repent, realign themselves with the purposes of God. And then rather than there be famine in the land, there was God's favor in the land. Mm. Now, now, I didn't mean to take such a long time there with that answer, but you see predict, you see create, and you see prevent. Now, do we, do we want to be brave enough or bold enough to attach those kind of realities to this musical expression that we understand mm. to be prophetic worship? So, but here, here, you know, just a definition of, the, of prophetic ministry is the declaration of the mind of God and the power of the Spirit with a special bearing on the now, current situation, as well as the future. But not only does it have the ability to predict the future, it has the ability to create the future. It has the ability to prevent unwelcome future happenings. Wow. So I think every time we step into an atmosphere of worship now, now that's the second word in in the phrase, and worship, well, the Old Testament word for worship is shakah. Shakah means to bow, to bend, to put your face to the ground. And what that speaks of is, number one, when you put your face to the ground, you're getting your head below your heart. Wow. So take that intellectual stuff and let's put it on the ground where it belongs and let our let our heart rise above our head. The second reason that, that they would do that is uh, to return to the purpose for which they were created from where they were created. We, we came up out of the dirt. And uh, so to put your face to the ground was really returning back to the purpose of your creation as a worshiper. Wow. And thirdly, if you want to look at worship, if you're going to worship God, sometimes you just got to get down to earth. Wow. And get out of the high and lofty Christianese and all the rhetoric that makes us feel particularly religious. And so prophetic worship to me. Now, now there's a whole other, whole other d- dynamic and dimension of what we consider to be prophetic worship. We typically think of, well, it's uh, that spontaneous time in the service where we just go off and, and, uh, and that can be a part of it. Yes. But, that's, but that is not the all of it. That, that's, that's for certain. And you find it even uh, in times of, uh, you know, times of prophetic worship to create a, a, a more cohesive understanding of the two together. Prophetic worship is a, a celebration or at least an, an, an acknowledgement of an atmosphere that honors what God is saying mm-hmm. and an engagement and an interaction with God in that moment. So that's where you find the musically you find that prophetic song can be man-to-man yes. songs, man-to-God songs, and God-to-man songs. And what you're doing, you're celebrating, you're giving an opportunity for all three of those to actually uh, be, be realized. And uh, so to me, that's what you know, prophetic song really is, is just yes. creating an atmosphere of humility, bowing our heads in such a way that we can hear his voice, experience his language. What does he want to sing? Yeah. We know he sings. Yeah. So, and if it's prophetic, it's, it's his voice. We're, we're just simply instruments. I love what you're saying because it gives so much scope for more than a Sunday service. Yeah. You know, like there's, because there's people that don't fit that mold. There's people that love to worship God that don't fit the mold of this is what you know, a songwriter, this is what worship must look like, must fit a Sunday service. But you're saying it can cover so many genres, like prophetic worship, because it's really about the posture of the heart first, isn't it? That's the worship part. But then the prophetic part is what does God want to say? And that can look so different Mm -hmm. in different settings. And, you know, because musicians and worship leaders and and even prophetic people are so sensitive. I mean, that's part of their sensory system. That's that whole idea of, you know, all five of the senses coming into agreement with the atmosphere of the moment. Yeah. But uh, yeah, and, and shame on all of us for believing that there's only five senses. <laughs> you, know, you know, I mean, Aristotle said there were five senses, senses so we bought it, but it's right. not even not even reality. Um there's tw- there's a, a acknowledge and identified over 21 senses now that are wow that are, 
And but we want to hang with an old Greek ideology. And in fact, they're, they're, the, the Hebrews were not confined to Greek linear thinking. They were they were far more uh, intuitive. Yeah. And they could feel, see, know, hear. There's all kinds of things that can compel us to respond to an awareness in the spirit. Well, when you say that, I love that because I'm having a little giggle because sense of direction is not one of my mm. <laughs> gifts. But when we talk about more than five senses, what's a sense that you've tried to develop that's beyond those five senses that we know? I try to be so in the moment that I yield and give myself to hearing and also to see it. I'm very image oriented. Yeah. My sense of beauty is what mm-hmm. I lean to most. Uh, I, I think the goodness and the kindness of the Lord and uh, and the, the, his heart that welcomes us to know rather than to fight to hear or to fight to, you know, we spend so much of our time trying to m- move a congregation, you know, many times, worship leaders especially. Yes. I mean, we give ourselves to sort of surfing the emotions of a congregation waiting until something speaks up. Mm. And then we change the dynamic musically to marry whatever we feel or sense is going on in the room. What if, what if we sort of yield it to be more about the, the whole, whole person being immersed in the moment to the point wow. that we can see it, hear it, feel it, know it? Uh, I mean, wow. I, I, uh, the sense of balance can come into play. Mm. You know, uh, and I'm talking about a physical. I mean, have you ever felt the weightiness of the Lord on your life and you think, I'm not going to be able to stand? Mm. Or you can, uh, you know, quickening of your mortal body in a situation where all of a sudden you're leading worship and your elbow begins to hurt and yeah. you don't have a bad elbow. <laughs> wow. Or you get a pain in your, in your temple and you don't have pains in your temple and and uh, so there's all kinds of sensory things that can happen there. I think we need just to carry enough of the Word of God and, and the Psalms so deeply within us that we can find language like David did. Yes. He sensed all of those things. Wow. Sense of loss, sense of uh, rejection. He would sense rejection, mm-hmm. and he'd turn around and write a song about it. That's interesting to me that you bring in that up because that was that's one of the questions I wanted to ask you. But we shy away from some of those things in modern day worship, you know, like we see David writing about feeling rejected or sorrow and pain, but we, we feel like they're bad things. Do you know what I mean? Like people go, Oh, I can't write about that. So where's the balance there? Like if we're, or or no, let me rephrase the question. Do you think there's a place for that? Yes. There would be no lamentations. Uh, there would be no psalms of lament. There would be no songs of loss. There would be no. In other words, we would not. We would be carrying only this, t- this very temporal religious ideologies into our music, rather than truly um, uh, experiencing and processing life. Life is mm. full of, of disappointments, full of disasters, full of pain. Full. Of, yeah. All of those are there, and uh, and I, what I what I feel like we're supposed to do is. It's our responsibility to write about them. Wow. We, uh, yeah, we, we should write about them. I have a, a songwriting friend who's in heaven now. He, he wrote some of the most powerful and sad songs you've ever heard in your life. These lyrics were just beauty. It was beauty and metaphor, but he had all of these images and he had melodies. When he would sing, you would just, he would just hold you absolutely captive. Mm-hmm. With the mel- uh, with the melody until you had fully experienced all the pain that was in that song. Wow! And I and I asked him one day. I said, "What in the world, man? I mean, you're the happiest guy I know. I think, but your songs. When I listen to your music, I want to just go out back and cut my wrist, man. That's the <laughs> saddest stuff I've ever heard." And I said, "What's what's happening here?" He said, "He says, well, I write my sadness so I won't have to live it." Wow. And I dare say that was a lot of what David did. Wow. There was just so much sadness and so much conflict and uh, so much pain in his life. But hey, but and he would be writing those blues and then he would suddenly just you, the lyric would shift. Yes. And he said, but, I, but yet I will praise the Lord, my God, who is worthy to be praised, who is. And, and he would begin to acknowledge God's power to take him through that. 
That's wonderful. Yeah. Okay, so when I when I share those kind of ideas with um, my worship songwriting friends, one of the comments that comes up amongst us is, "How do you do that in the context of when it's got to be a congregational song? When you're when you're yeah, yeah. sometimes sometimes you can't. Yeah, and the reason is is because the Lord's not doing necessarily a, a deep dive into pain on a corporate level at that time. Yes. And the Holy Spirit is well able to orchestrate his hand across a congregation and touch every individual where they are. Where they, And sometimes great songs of joy might come across to that person that's going through so much pain. Yeah. That would be an awakening to something different than the pain yeah. they're going through. Some, yeah. But somebody else may respond very differently to the very same sound and song because it's not just dependent upon our lyrics and imagery and so on. It's an invitation for the multifaceted nature of God to be in the room and touch this multifaceted congregation in such a way mm -hmm. that they all get to meet with him. You know, there's a symphony that's going on when we come together in his presence. And sometimes it's just not time for deep, sad or, or pain or hurt or, yeah. or anything like that. But sometimes it is, you know, that's great. Great answer. I love that. So, I'm assuming that you talk about that idea in that wonderful course that you have, David Singer of Secrets. And I was looking at it the other day and I was watching some of the um, the little videos that you had there. And I just wondered if there was anything else from that course. I'd love you to share what can we learn as creatives from the life of David, one of your favourite things where you just go, you know what I love? I love this about David. There's two things that always stand out immediately when I'm asked a question like this. The one unique thing that I think most people or many people, I know I did for years, I kind of overlook. And I won't tell the long version of it, but the fact is he was alone. He was a misfit. Mm -hmm. He didn't fit in his own family. He didn't fit in the army on the hill on the, on the Goliath day. He didn't fit in Saul's palace. He didn't fit everywhere that you see him. He was a misfit. And he didn't belong. And I think sometimes on some level, we need to realize that some of us, something happens in our life when really very beautiful, when we discover that we're not supposed to fit in. Mm, wow. So then we now we can go ahead and be the unique us that we're created to bring. Mm. And we're not going to always fit. Being a misfit is okay. Like with David, Misfit in his own family, also misfit in the house of the Lord. That's why he longed for the courts of the Lord, longed for the presence of God. He couldn't go to church. Why? He couldn't even fit in his family. He, he, he was disqualified on every level because some scholars believe that he was, a, he was an illegitimate son. That's why he wasn't there on, when Samuel came to anoint. Wow. And the, and, and the amazing part of that story was that the part I want to get to is as quickly as I can, just to make this point, because it's one of the most unique things about his life, I think, is here comes Samuel with a horn of oil. That had never happened. You don't put oil in a horn. Never before that moment in Scripture, there's no oil in a horn. Wow. Except for when Hannah was singing a prophetic worship song. She spoke of that horn. Hannah. Then her son Samuel is born, and you know that whole beautiful story. Yeah. But then he would be the one that would anoint the kings that she was singing about at Samuel's birth. Wow. Now, that's amazing. Now, here this guy that had, had his mother singing a prophetic song over him. He comes now as the old prophet Samuel. God said, put oil in the horn. Go to Jesse's house. I'm going to show you what to do. And, he, and that's when Samuel said, wait a minute. Well, you know, Saul will kill us. I mean, I, I can't do that. How, how can I do that? And that's when God spoke up and said, well, here's how you're going to do it. And he told him, he gave wow. him a way to do it. He, he wasn't lying. No, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go sacrifice. You're going to do this. Didn't it? And he, out of obedience to that word, he goes. Now he gets to the house. And that's when finally the long story short is not him, not him, not him, not him. And God it causes Samuel to completely readjust his assessment of everybody in the room. 
Look at all these talented, creative, charismatic, powerful leaders, but none of them are him. And that's when, they, of course, they call David in. Samuel anoints David and turns around and walks out the door, and nobody knows why. So the real beauty of that story was is no one knew what happened. It was so prophetic in nature that they're now left to guess. Yeah. What happened? Oh, I know. And one of the brothers, I can hear him speak up now. I know what's going on. Samuel heard about his musical abilities, his talent, his skill. Now, I bet you, David, that little twerp is going to go on the road with Samuel, and he's going to be part of Samuel's band over on the hill of Ramah. I guarantee you, he's going to be in the band now. He's going on the road. He's going to be a star. But David didn't even process it even that deep. He just turned around and walked back out to the sheep. And there in the shepherd's field, that's where he continued to uh, now an acceleration of preparation for his destination. Without all the guesswork, I'm going to go be who I am. And he went back to singing wow. and swaddling sheep. Wow. And now in that place, that's where the longing awakened him to his truest destiny. Now watch how it works. His longing then became lyrics. His lyrics would become the language of Israel. That language would become the liturgy that we still, you know, we just read some of it wow. a few minutes ago. And that liturgy would, would then be married to literature. That literature became one of the ways that you and I access truth and life. And then at the end of his life, what did he do? He left a lover's legacy for all of humanity to be able to know God because it was all born out of a place of longing. And we keep finding all the right answers when we when we shouldn't even be looking for them. We should be yeah. ones that are looking for the we're, we're not supposed to know everything. We're not supposed to have all answers. We're supposed to be the ones with all the questions mm. and the longings and the desires and so on to to hear and know, see God. That's the thing that always kind of strikes me most about David is just his his uh, the realness. Yeah, of, of who he was, and yeah. when and then when he's when when it's uh, offered to him, after all the misfit stuff and all the rejection stuff, the drunks uh, mocking him at the gates and him writing songs about it, and, and his enemies out to kill him, and they, and and Saul tried to kill him twenty one times. Wow! And when you get through all all of that, you find one who who can still. Uh, you know, you've probably heard me say at some point, Roma, that uh, the, both he and Saul were flawed men. The difference was, is when Saul sinned, it hardened his heart. When David sinned, it broke his heart. Wow. And if you're wa walking in honesty and authentic brokenness, you have become now an instrument that God can speak through. It's beautiful. So there's why prophetic worship is important to us. His worship was so prophetic that he was singing songs about death, burial, and resurrection and a cross. And wow. the son of David would one day come and be a fulfillment of that because of the covenant promises put in those songs. Wow. And the prophecy is not about telling you what to do and how to do it. It's about awakening who you are. Mm. And so what he was doing is he was creating atmospheres of prophetic worship. Wow. That would one day awaken all of humanity to who they were born to be because the son of David would come as the song of the Lord. Beautiful. Oh, gosh, my head is just going in a million miles per hour right now. But I just love what you said about prophetic worship, awakening who you are. And I'm I'm tying it back to a comment you made just at the beginning of this podcast where you said that you can have a, a sense of beauty. And in my mind, I asked myself the question, what would it look like if when I went to lead on a Sunday, I actually was mindful that this was about beauty, not yeah. about what is what, what am I going to say that God wants me to say? What, am I going to say something about the future? Am I going to decree or declare? What about if I'm just aware of the beauty and I sing from that place and then the next step is, because it's all about people being awakened to who they are in him. Yeah. I mean, wow. Yeah, the that, purpose for our creation. 
which is worship, which is worship. And so what is that strongly implies if we're created to worship and we're not worshipers of God, we forfeit the reason we exist. Yeah. So worship and the overflow of our worship, you know, like like it's not the band's job to do the worshiping for the people. It's the band's job to put enough water in the room for them to walk on it. Mm, Wow. So you fill the room full of the worship that they can, and they, and then they get to embrace a God who, who, uh, uh, you know, that they can't resist. That's beautiful. Uh, wow. Because, you, know, you, know, you know, worship is not about um, meeting the needs of this great, big, insecure, egotistical God with identity issues. You remember, this, I think I read this to you one time. It's a very short little thing. It speaks of what worship is. He, he is a father who seeks us to worship him because in moments of spirit and truth worship, he receives our undivided attention and the purest expressions of our love. While he gives us his undivided attention and purest expressions of his love. So those are moments when both parties, he and us, experience love as a gift and not a reward. Wow. That's when seekers become finders in moments of worship because he was seeking us as we were seeking him. So worship is when love finds love. Mm. See, something wow. healing healing can happen in us. Rather. And, and we and many times, you know what we're talking about the congregation earlier. We don't always know the weightiness of and the, or the prophetic depth of what's going on in the room at that time. And so how many times have we sung this crazy song? And we keep singing. Uh, we've sung this song a, um, a thousand times. And then all of a sudden there's one word and yeah. one verse and one line that awakens and quickens. Yes. And then that moment we have this acute awareness and a sensitivity to the presence of God in our midst. Now, when that happens, you got to realize that God, in the very same moment, suddenly had an acute awareness and a sensitivity to Roma's presence in that same atmosphere. Mm-hmm. See, that's when love finds love, mm-hmm. and that's what, and that's that's why our job has got to be more than just create atmospheres for and to surf crowds, emotions, and so on. Wow. It's, it's far more than that. Wow. I know. It's almost like when you put it like that, that's almost like the lowest common denominator. It's like the, the low-hanging fruit just to surf yeah. the sound, you know. It's so yeah. much deeper. And and what are we creating when we make that the goal? Like that's the thing I think of a lot is the legacy that I leave behind with the way that I create and the way that I worship is like, what are we creating that the next generation is going to build on? Are we, is it the wrong foundations? And sometimes I, you know, I mean, I love worship from all over the world. I love listening to songs that come from the many different houses across the body of Christ. I celebrate it and I love it. But I also hope we're not raising a generation who think it's about writing hit songs and being yeah. number one on the radio. You know what I mean? I, I'm like, yeah. I hope the next generation sees that's not the goal. Yeah. Well, we, and we got to make sure that they, uh, that we define some things for the next generation or we're going to, we're going to have a bunch of, of crippled ones in front uh, coming behind us that, that yes. doesn't realize the difference between fame and greatness. Wow. Because most, most musicians and talented people, so many times they wound up being held captive by fame yeah. and never go on to the greatness. Yes. And uh, I tell songwriters all the time, I say, you're not writing next year's most popular chorus. You, when you write a worship song, you're writing the next generation's language for accessing God. And and you're because right. you're writing the next generation's understanding of who God is. Wow. And, you know, you're talking about getting that uh, hymnal from the Wesleys. Yes. Look what they did. They, I mean, they, yes. more, more of our theology comes from the hymn writers that were experiencing God in those days and exploring uh, the revelation in their days. What they knew of God in those days became really our theology for today. Yes. Yeah. Joint, so true. 
you know, one of the reasons I think for that is, is because today we've learned how to, you know, the book of Psalms has, has become a backdrop in our service. It should be the backbone of our service. Wow. Get away from the backdrop and hitting it with the lights. No, let it be our backbone that we carry. Yes. It gives us reason to stand upright and praise the Lord. Amazing. Amazing. Oh, my goodness. I feel like I could just keep you for hours and hours. But I love what you're saying about the next generation. And I'm even wondering, maybe we can end with this question. How can we position ourselves as worshippers? What, what's coming? What's next? What, what do we do to help awaken people and awaken ourselves? Well, you know, I, I think I think we've got to take it to another level rather than just trying to reinvent or re, uh, we don't need a new new definition of worship. We need a new demonstration of the power of God. Wow! Right? And and I think it and I think that's going to be something that comes out of a people who carry this as backbone. You know, I've often said, you know, you when when you get saved, God will give you give you uh, uh, give you a new heart, but you've got to grow your backbone. Mm. And, and what the backbone of our future will be, having an understanding of of longing becoming lyrics, lyrics becoming uh, language, language becoming literature and or liturgy. Now, what does liturgy really look like for us in this new day? Not some old stoic, you know, uh, dryness of of a religious culture, but uh, it's the song. That yeah, I, I believe there's a song that David realized and and Amos prophesied that there will come a day when. There, there will be the tabernacle of David will be re- restored and established in the earth. And you remember when David was set up the tabernacle of David, they functioned for 33 years. Now, I'm just going to go straight at it, and, you know, and I'm just leave this to whoever wants to identify with it or not. I believe there's a 33-year harvest coming. Wow. I think there's going to be all around the earth. You know, because it said in Amos eight eleven, there was a famine of the hearing of the word of the Lord in the land. Mm. And if there's ever been a famine of the hearing, it's now. Yes, plenty of rattling going on out there. But I'll tell you, a famine of the hearing of the word of the Lord in the land is everywhere. Yes, and then Amos nine eleven. But I will build again in the tabernacle of David, and as a result of the tabernacle of David, the sower will be overtaken by the reaper, planter overtaken by the harvester. So it's about harvest. Mm. The nations of the earth are going to be able to see and experience God's glory because of that season. Yeah. David did it for 33 years, same length of Jesus' life. And then there was another huge transition that would happen. And Jesus came to restore worship of all of humanity, all nations, all tribe, all tongues. So you see that that working together. Now, what, yeah. what does that look like for us? Well, I believe that uh, let, let's take one of your songs. Uh, oh, matter of fact, I'm going to be with a, with Darlene uh, Check tomorrow. Oh, will you say hi from Roma? We're good friends. Okay, so she, what does she do? She writes a song that becomes a language of a generation. Yes. There's others yes. out there that are doing the same thing. And language for accessing God, shout to the Lord. Uh, do you ever think about if there's real breath and life on a particular song in your church or in your congregation or in your life right now, how many ways can you awaken all of the truth that God wants to speak prophetically through that song? Wow. Let's say, here's the song. Now, how can you live it? How can you write it? What if you pastors gave an assignment to every writer in the church to write an essay on that song? Wow. What about every person in the congregation? Part of our liturgy, our daily rhythms of interacting with God was this week, everybody at 7 a.m., everyone in this congregation, we want you, we're going to sing it wherever you are. You're going to sing and I'm going to sing. Set your alarm. to. We're going to sing it. You could even do it like David did and wow. do it seven times a day. Wow. We're going to sing it seven times a day. Shout to the Lord. Uh, you know, uh, I, I wish I could just immediately think of the rest of it. But but here's the idea. You live it. You write it. You sing it. You be it. You do it. Yeah. You know it. You understand it. 
all week long or all month long, our daily devotion is going to be around this song. Wow. Where it's a psalm, a hymn, a spiritual song. And pastors, for a month, we want you to preach this song. And then, and all intercessors, this is the template for all prayer for the month of January. And then, we're, and then when we come together, we're going to sing it. When we come together, we're going to shout it. How, okay, David designated people to lead in the shout. So we have our shout department over here. <laughs> How many ways can they creatively engage in such a way to release a shout into a congregation that shifts things in the heavens the way the seven shouts of, of Scripture did? Yeah. You're going to prophesy. And oh, by the way, dancers, this is the song you're dancing. Create a choreographed expression of this song because this is the song of the month. Wow. Uh, so you see where I'm see where I'm Love going. It. What is dance anyway? Dance is just sculpting the air and honoring space. Wow. So you're going to bring all of your being into this. You're going to sculpt the air. You're going to honor the presence of God in this space through the Beautiful. dance. Maybe even while the shout's going on because they got together. And then you're going to painters paint this song. Uh, and we have three people in our church that are wood carvers. Yeah, Carve beautiful. this song. Beautiful. There's no stopping us. Build it, builders. Teach it, teachers. All month long, it's going to be. Read it, readers. Meditate on this. Well, I don't know how to meditate. Do you know how to worry? <laughs> well, if you know how to worry, you know how to meditate. Yeah. You, it don't have to be some Eastern deal making your mind empty. Fill your spirit full. Yes. Uh, uh, Okay, I'm trying to save us a bit of time here, but you, you get the point. Celebrate its Wonderful. truths. Wonderful. Awaken and, and then give an assignment. I want every poet in this house, every poet prophet, every poetate, poetase, every person in this church that has a heart for language and beauty and rhyme and meter and whatever, I want all of the poets to report with the poetry that God raises out of that. And all they got really got to do is just receive the inspiration from one line or two lines and just find out how many poems could come out of that one song. If you, wow. and not only uh, if, if you deputized a whole congregation for this kind of worship, what would, I wonder what the Lord would speak to us now. He would probably speak to us through some moment of prophetic worship that would set the course for the next season and the next season Wow! and the next season. Wow. I think we've got to change our understanding of worship and music yeah. and quit letting the world tell us what music is and what worship is and what it is and what it's not. I love that. Oh, my goodness. I want to cry. It's so good. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. I, I, um, I feel prompted by the Lord to ask another final question. I promise this is the last one. <laughs> You've got five more final questions. <laughs> <laughs> no, I won't do the Italian version of the final question. It is a final question. But I want to ask you, I just feel for the people that are listening to this podcast who maybe are a little older, you know, I don't know if this happens in other nations, but when you reach a certain age here, there's kind of a bit of a culture that you don't fit the mold anymore or you're not relevant as a worship leader um, or in a team. I have a lot of people, a lot of my friends, I say, why aren't you joining the worship team? And they're like, oh, no, I'm too old. And I just, I can't believe that that's the comment. And so I wonder if you have anything to say to people that are older, creatives, maybe feeling a bit like they're not, they're a misfit, they, they don't fit anymore. Yeah. Uh, well, I always, I always want to just remind everybody that uh, the reason David was effective is because he was a misfit. Mm. But he had to constantly deal with reshaping his own expectations, rising above his disappointments. And because, uh, uh, you know, be, being a misfit can feel troubling until you realize that you were not meant to fit in, like I said a few minutes ago. But, we'll ne but we will never change a culture by becoming like the culture, and we will never change the church by becoming like the church. And wow. I think at some point, every person, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but it, in, the, in the days of 
the tabernacle of David and going, in, going into the temple, there were these young ones that had these amazing voices and so on and that would, these singers. And the older ones had, an, had a name in Hebrew that, and they called them the tormentors. Wow. Now that, that tells you that there was a generation gap there. And there was, there was strict guidelines laid out for, you know, you got to be 30 years of age to do so-and-so. And then it was later lowered to 21 years of age. And, but there's always been that gap of, of those that are, that are coming in and those that are supposedly going out. Well, in, in, in our modern culture, of course, we were all victims of that musically more than anything else. And that's one of the reasons, even though it was a word, it was never a common word in any vernacular, in any language, a teenager. There's no such thing as a teenager until Elvis came along and Colonel Tom Parker caused that to be a marketing mechanism, actually. So you, he defined the generational transition and they did it musically. And then pretty soon they showed, we'll make sure that they're reaching the market that will screen, not the market that will detest and resent and so on. So there was that breakdown. But now, now I didn't mean to get into the long answer, but here's the, here's the, short quickness of it. Why at age 30 or whatever, when you don't look like what the new cool is or the new it is or the new whatever it is that's come along, those seasonal trendy kind of things, why does it why do we feel like that's an opportunity? About the time that people start getting mature enough to lead, they're no longer necessary. Mm-mm. And we wonder why there's such lack of depth and shallowness wow. in some of the young ones that are coming is because it's it's so limited to their understanding and their experience musically and in the and in the things of God. So we've got to learn how to do the, like David did. David and the captains separated to the service of the house of the Lord, Asaph, Jeduthun, and Heman, that they might prophesy upon the harps, timbrel, cymbals, and so on, under the hands of their fathers after the order of the king. Now, that's a mistranslation. Hand is yod. So the old guys are putting their hands on the young ones after the order of the king. Order is also a mistranslated English word. It's actually also hand. So under the hand of the king, the hand of the captains and the elders, right down to the musicians, then the 288 singers and trained musicians. So there there was this understanding of apprenticeship, understanding of honor. Mm. And our culture doesn't do that. Yeah. So we don't in the house of the Lord. I'm, 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 uh, see, honor is a powerful thing. Honor, it's, 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 like a, it's like a song sung from generation to generation. And, we don't, and that song cannot cease. Honor feels like placing your fingers on the strings that your father played while he smiles to your song. Mm. When in, in the music world, honor goes away because we need the next it. Yeah. Honor is finding yourself being amazed by the things that amazed your father. Wow. Not rejecting the things that amazed your father because that's old school. Yeah. It's yesterday, today, and forever. It was, is, and is to come. Honor is praying for your grandchildren while you go for a walk with your great-grandfather's cane. Wow. Honor is the opposite of this critical judgment that is sown into us by the marketing mechanisms of the world because we always got to have the new it. A critical judgment is not constructive critique that can speak into the next generation's life. Uh, it's treated like dishonor. And, uh, but I, I also want to say that being honored is not nearly as important as being honorable. Yeah, wow. So let's don't be doing the, the wrong thing and throwing folks away about the time they come to the place that they could really be used to the Lord. Now they got to go through a dark season of disappointment and rejection yeah. and, and, un, and try to think, why did I, why did I sow into that for 15 years? Mm. Uh, well, as long as we keep using the world to become our template for music, that's going to be a reality because theirs is based on marketing. Yes. You know, it, it, really good. 
Wow. Ray, thank you so much. This is a podcast I'm going to play over and over. I'm going to have to underline it and type it out. That's how I feel. It's going to make turn it into a book and underline it. <laughs> yeah, but go for it. I will. Um, we're so thankful for you. I Look, I just want to honour you again. I know I'm probably overdoing it, but it's honestly, I just am so blessed by you. You've had such a huge impact on me as a worshipper and a creative. And I know that's, I'm one of many, but I just want to honor you and thank you for the legacy that you are leaving us. And I know there's many more to come, many more revelations to come. And this is just a moment in time, but we'll, I can't wait to actually hear what the Lord reveals to you in the future that we can learn from, but just so thankful for you and your ministry. Thank you for never giving up. Thanks for being a misfit. Yeah. <laughs> I've got that one down, Pat. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm so glad that you are like that because you're. it makes us feel normal. <laughs> um, so it, just to end, how can people connect with you? Oh, well, you know, the easiest way is just go on, um, what's it? I can't remember Oh, rayhughes.org. I knew it was something really complicated. <laughs> uh, Ray, Ray, we've just kind of redone and get, given them the kind of yes. new facelift to our, and simplified our, our website. And it's basically now, all these years, all of these uh, common, all these series, and some of them are 24 parts, 90 minutes yes. on each CD to, you know, minstrel series. And there was one called Tabernacle of David Then and Now. And Yes. Designed to worship. All of them are these long series things. And I got some books and stuff on there, a lot of teaching stuff. And well, what we've done now, instead of you know selling all of those, we just put them all in one big bucket now, and you can just get them all in one fail swoop and listen to them for a couple of years. Fantastic. It's fifteen dollars a month, and you get all like seven or eight hundred dollars, whatever it is. When you get done listening, just quit paying the fifteen dollars. That's great. And I highly recommend it, guys. Go and snap up everything. Go get Ray's books on Amazon. They are just so full of wisdom. And once again, thank you so much, Ray, for being with us today on the podcast. Thanks so much for listening to Release the Sound, a podcast on prophetic worship. If you're hungry for more, head to romawaterman.com where you can check out my book, Releasing Heaven's Song, Singing Over Your Nation for Breakthrough and Revival. It includes activations that you can use with your team or even on your own. And I've also got an online school where we have several courses on the prophetic, worship, spirituality and creativity. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review. And until then, I pray that you will release the song of heaven over your family, your church and even your nation. And I look forward to sharing with you in the next Release the Sound Prophetic Worship Podcast.